0: If you haven't fallen victim to an internet scam, count yourself lucky. My scammer, he got as much money out of me as they can and then he disappeared. Melissa, an American, had transferred her life savings, $300,000, into what she would soon find out was a scammer's cryptocurrency wallet. I don't know if I will ever find
1: justice. It was just a horrible feeling.
0: One thing she did find, though, was the scammer's location.
1: He's in Cambodia.
0: But what Melissa didn't realize was that he may have been forced to pull the scam.
1: These scammers, they're being trafficked.
0: Some of these scammers are also victims, not only losing their money, but also losing their freedom, too and Cambodia has become the epicentre. Tens of thousands of people are being trafficked there, and the government and authorities appear to be complicit. What happens when you fall victim to a cyber scam, and who's really at fault? I'm Hala Mohiuddin, and this is The Take. I just scared myself silly by watching your documentary again. Right. Marianne Jolly just finished up the film Forced to Scam, Cambodia's Cyber Slaves." She's a reporter for Al Jazeera's Asia programme 101 East. And the film is truly mind-blowing. It's the story of something that could happen to any of us. Our credit card's being compromised. We get a fishy-looking email. But after deleting the email you may not really think about who sent it, who's at the other end. It all seems like an unsolvable mystery. Well, Marianne may have solved that riddle, at least in part. It all starts with the story of Melissa, a 33-year-old with entrepreneurial aspirations.
1: Melissa is not her real name. She didn't want us to use her
0: real name. And Melissa has been thinking about who was on the other end of the messages she received. She's been thinking about that a lot.
1: She had come to the US as a refugee with her family when she was a child. She was born in Vietnam. When all of this happened, just last year, she was in her
0: 30s. And when the pandemic hit, she felt alone. She was
1: working from home, isolated Feeling pretty lonely, single, and started to go online, looking through the dating app, Hinge. Melissa had used Hinge before and had a good experience
0: for the most part. Nothing bad had ever happened to her. She just hadn't found the one,
1: not yet. So she swiped right on this very good-looking fellow who claimed that he was a Chinese architect who had been caught in the United States during the pandemic and couldn't get back to China. They started messaging. He was very attentive. He sent photographs of his work, his life when he was back in China. His pets, holidays that he'd had, they would talk 24-7, as she said. He was always online when she wanted to talk to him. And to Melissa, it looked like the relationship was growing. He promised her all sorts of things once they got to know one another. that he'd take her back to China, introduce her to his parents. She obviously wanted to meet up with him, but because of the pandemic, he told her he had to be very careful not to get COVID because he was earning a living for his parents. She said it did seem weird that he wouldn't meet up with her, but it was COVID time, so she let it go. It's something so many people
0: can relate to because everybody lived their lives online at that time. I mean, I was married, but I had friends, family members who were single who were also on the dating
1: apps. Everything was done online through messaging. Exactly. And she trusted this person. She didn't have a family around her to talk about what was going on.
0: So how did it switch from a regular relationship to handing over money?
1: Right from the very start, he talked about his interest in cryptocurrency. He never really pushed her to invest or anything, but every now and again drop in stories about how he invested in this and it made a bit of money and then after about a month he started to say you shouldn't think about investing in this and I know this company that might be able to help you and he was also saying things like we will build our lives together and this is for us. So he introduced her to this company.
0: She didn't realise the company
1: was fake. She did due diligence, she says. She looked online and sure enough, there was a cryptocurrency trading platform company. they had the same name. It looked legitimate. So she thought everything was fine. Then he gave her a site to download to this fake company. But she said even with the fake company, there were 24-7 customer service people. It looked completely legitimate. And it seems like quite a sophisticated operation, isn't it? It is sophisticated, yes. So you can see that people might easily believe it is a legitimate site. And there's a term for what they did to Melissa, isn't there? There is. It's
0: called pig butchering. That's what the scammers call it. Melissa describes it herself. I'm the pig, apparently. (laughs) They're going to fan up the pig, fan up the victim... And then once it's fat and juicy, which is when they get a lot of money out of us, then they're just going to butcher us.
1: Once people have invested most of their savings into these fake companies, then the account is blocked and she lost her life savings and was unable to start up a business which she'd been wanting to start up for years. It left Melissa devastated. She felt embarrassed
0: about what had happened to her.
1: But even more so, she still really feared the people who had scammed her. I mean, $300,000 for a 33-year-old is a massive amount of money. Well, the guys who did this don't sound like particularly
0: nice guys. And that's an understatement, really. And the short story would be you chase these culprits down and that's it. But when you investigated this and you unraveled this case, it's a bit more complicated than just a bunch of nasty people
1: Yes, well there's a massive twist to this case and it's something Melissa didn't realise. She had very little sympathy, understandably, for these scammers but then she was really disturbed by what she saw.
0: And this is where the story starts to pick up. In Cambodia now, most of it in a city called Sihanoukville where Marianne went to investigate There are many aspects to Sihanoukville in
1: Cambodia. It is a coastal retreat in the country's southwest with fine sand and breezy resorts. About six hours' drive southwest of the capital Phnom Penh. It's a beautiful location. It's right on the sea. But within the last 10 years, it has gone from a sleepy beachside village, really, to a massive casino metropolis. There has been a tidal wave of Chinese investment. There are all these massive developments happening all over the place. And with that has come organised crime. It's an incredibly dangerous place. The 101 East team heard about scams in Sihanoukville.
0: When they met Chen, the pieces started falling into place.
1: Chen was a 23, 24-year-old Chinese citizen who had been working as a cook in China, and somebody posted an ad for a job in Cambodia promoting online games, and it was paid considerably well. He thought, oh, it's better than being a cook.
0: He did the interview, got the job, and flew to Cambodia, even getting picked up at the airport. His ticket paid for.
1: But then when he came out of quarantine, he was taken to this compound in a remote area of Cambodia and found it was an illegal online gambling company.
0: He had been sold. As far as he knew, he was the company's property now. It was like being in prison, except even in prison there are human rights. But in there, they don't care.
1: When you arrive, you have to surrender your passport, and then you're locked in these compounds. And even worse, sometimes you're locked in just a floor of that compound. You're told that you owe the company six to ten thousand dollars for the flights, the accommodation, so you can't leave till you've repaid that. But that, in a sense, is lies too, because even if you were able to repay the money and you were paid by the company, they never let you leave. He was trafficked and basically forced into doing cryptocurrency romance scams. And he did everything that Melissa sort of tells us about. The only way to leave was to escape, jump from the building, as many people do, or else go online and approach the authorities. But that's not easy either.
0: Yeah, it doesn't always work. I mean, that was the example of another one of the guys that you spoke to.
1: Yeah, Liu Xiangri, the company, told him that they bought him for like 12,000 US dollars. And he was basically locked in this building.
0: He says he was there with almost 3,000 people. And he was pretty distraught. But he was also determined to get out. So he contacted the Chinese embassy. According to Liu, they suggested he call the local authorities. So he called the police and told them he was being held. They called back, asking for his passport
1: number. So he was pretty sure that they were going to come and rescue him. But while he waited, he sent messages on Facebook to the governor of Fall, and he says also to the prime minister of the country, Hun Sen. But unfortunately, the police didn't come to save him. The next day, the property management people came to him. Somebody had informed the property management he had called the police. He was sold to another company in Sihanoukville for 16700 I think, US dollars. 4000 of that, he was told, was payment for the police. Meanwhile
0: in Sihanoukville, Marianne tried to get into these compounds. In most cases, barbed wire and security made that impossible. But at one particular
1: compound, there's actually shops, there's hairdressers, pharmacies, supermarkets. When you go into those, you find that there's bars in the middle of them. So that means it's a shop for people from the outside and they shop for the people who are in these compounds. They're not allowed to escape.
0: The bars on the windows, the bars on the insides of these shops and cafes. It really kind of strikes home that these people are imprisoned
1: against their will. This is slavery. Exactly. Chen, the 23-year-old who we interviewed, he and a mate tried to escape and did manage to get out of the building But then were caught by security, hauled back in, handcuffed, thrown into a room, left alone. Then the next day they were marched into the scam office and all the other workers were forced to beat them. He's got a video of his injuries and he had bruises literally all over his body, deep wounds on his shins and so forth. There's another guy who actually did jump from the fourth floor of a building and broke his back. The security guards for the scam operation came running after him, beat him up and then didn't take him to hospital, instead locked him in a room and then extorted $30,000 from his family back in China before they would take him to the hospital.
0: Marianne and her team have seen video evidence that eyewitnesses
1: have smuggled out after their escapes. You see people handcuffed to iron beds, tortured with these cattle prawns. It really is horrific. I think what's really important to say too is one of the biggest buildings was a couple of blocks from the tourist esplanade. One was directly opposite the Prime Minister's summer residence. He was there when we were there. One was attached to a major international hotel. So what does that tell you?
0: The fact that these enormous compounds in Nookville are right in front of the Prime Minister's summer house?
1: Well, it suggests that the government is aware and benefiting from these operations because otherwise, why wouldn't they close them down?
0: And the work Marianne and her team did on this story proved that out. We'll hear how after the break.
1: On this week's episode of Essential Middle East Podcast, find out what the most right-wing government in Israel's history is doing in the Holy Land these days.
0: Marianne Holly and her team at 101 East had some evidence that the Cambodian government could be benefiting from human trafficking operations. But there was more they needed to find
1: out. Numerous victims contacted not only the Singapore governor, but also Hun Sen himself. That's Cambodia's prime minister. So they couldn't say that they weren't aware of this. And also, if you look at who owns some of the buildings, the first compound that Liu was taken to, and it's owned by one of the longest-serving senators in Hun Sen's government. The security guards wear uniforms that are emblazoned with one of his company's insignias. So they're not trying to hide anything. Some of the complexes were owned by companies with directors who were Chinese fugitives, convicted of serious crimes in China and then got Cambodian citizenship. And some of these Chinese directors were, in fact, advisers to the prime minister. You went to the Cambodian authorities. What did they tell you? Well, we went to the deputy governor in Sienokful. Basically, he told us that... The vast majority of complaints were false. Workers think they'll be paid more and have better
0: working conditions. So when they're not allowed to leave, they say they're confined. So why Cambodia? When we asked Marianne, she explained one reason is corruption. The country has ranked as one of the most corrupt in Asia for years.
1: Recently, it's become even more oppressive. The Hun Sen government has banned any major opposition party. So there's a history there that has just gone to a whole new level. It's actually become a safe haven for these international criminal networks.
0: Which, for victims of this, victims like Melissa, it doesn't give them much hope of getting any sort of redress. Melissa, of course, is a US citizen. Can she go to the US State Department?
1: She's contacted the FBI and things like that, but I don't think she's got particularly far. Since our story went to air, which was probably one of the first documentaries to an international audience, the United States put out their trafficking in persons report in which they downgraded Cambodia to the lowest level possible, citing these cyber scam operations. But also I There is a huge amount of pressure mounting from countries in the region whose citizens have been trafficked into Cambodia. So you see Thailand putting a huge amount of pressure on Cambodia to release its citizens. There's been pressure from Indonesia, from Vietnam, from India, from Myanmar. So I think that pressure is definitely mounting.
0: And victims Marianne spoke to are slowly arriving back home but they could still be considered the rare few.
1: One insider we spoke to in Sianukful suggested there were between fifty to 70,000 people enslaved and locked up in scanning operations. Perhaps there's been a few thousand or maybe even 10,000 people released, not officially. Nobody really knows how many people are still enslaved. But change is happening. The government has now finally started to admit that this is an issue. So some of the CyberScan compounds that we filmed have been emptied out. Some seem to have been emptied out prior to raids on them. So there is a suggestion that people are just being moved to another place in Cambodia, possibly a more isolated location, or else to countries like the Philippines, Lao, Myanmar are all centres for these scamming operations and they move people from one to the other, depending on what's happening with authorities. But
0: even if you get free from the compound, getting out of the country is another battle.
1: Most of the people that we interviewed are back in China, got back one way or the other. One of the victims is still waiting. The airfares are still astronomically expensive. And in many cases, they're being treated as criminals rather than victims and are being made to pay for everything. So for their accommodations, the food that they eat, any medical assistance they might need, phones to call home. So while they're in these immigration centres, they're actually racking up bills they're also going to have to pay before they're allowed to leave the country. Do you think there's a role for other organisations software companies, tech companies. Absolutely. Most experts would say it's not just Cambodia that's going to deal with this. Global institutions have to deal with this. People are still answering ads on Facebook. Many of these scams are cryptocurrency scams. There's just no regulation of it. We need to look at how to crack down on the transfer of money as well.
0: And for Melissa, she not only lost $300,000, but she lost a little bit of joy from her life.
1: You want to trust people
0: and leave them, but after being scammed, how can you trust anyone anymore? And for those still trapped in Cambodia, victims of scams of their own, their trust was broken too, and it's cost them their freedom. The question now, Marianne says, is for how long?
1: The level of human trauma is just on another scale. This is not something that any of us can turn our backs on. It's one of the worst stories I've ever worked on. The level of cruelty is just horrendous.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Miranda Lynn, Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliay, Ruby Zaman, Ashish Mahotra and me, Hala Deen. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Our engagement producers are Aya Al-Malek and Adam Abugad. Alexandra Locke is the Takes Executive Producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's Head of Audio. We'll be back on Wednesday.